Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. First Peter chapter two. We will conclude this morning looking at this particular passage that we've been in in verses thirteen to seventeen. There is uh, certainly a lot left to say, a lot more that could be said. This morning we'll be in many ways focused on instruction as we consider uh, this text together. So let me just begin by reading, we'll get started. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 to 17, read Peter writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. But this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Well, Father, as we've been considering this passage over the last few weeks, we know that it is one of great importance and we know that you have called us to be a people who are law-abiding, who honor our governing authorities, and who submit ourselves to their rules, to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, to give to God what belongs to God. We know as well, Lord, from your word that Caesar is not above God, and that there are indeed times when there is a conflict between the will of Caesar and the will of God, and when these conflicts arise, you call us to be a people who would submit to your will against that of Caesar, and this can be frightening, this can be intimidating. Lord, this could be a temptation for us to disobey your word. So I pray especially for our time this morning as we consider the relationship between ourselves and the state and we consider especially how we are to respond on occasions when the state would command us do what is against your will. Lord, that as you instruct us, you would humble us and that we would not become a people who are jumping at the bit to be rebellious, but that we would be a people whose 
basic disposition is submission unless we are forced otherwise. So be with us this morning. Instruct us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, as I said, we are concluding our consideration of the relationship between the Christian and the state from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 and 17. And uh, just by way of reminder, uh, some of the things that we have seen as we've considered this text is that our general disposition to the state is to be one of submission. We are not to be a lawless people. We are not called to be zealous revolutionaries who seek to overthrow whatever institutions exist. Our basic disposition is one of honor and obedience to the governing authorities. We are to be a people who pray for those who are in authority and who seek to honor them and show them proper respect even when we strongly disagree with them and even when we find their very personalities to be troublesome. We are in all situations to be a people who are prayerful for those who are in positions of authority. Additionally, our aim in submitting ourselves to the state is evangelistic. We want the gospel that we preach to be adorned with lives that are marked by righteousness and holiness. And as much as possible, we want the state to see our obedience to its laws as a reflection of our obedience to God. In other words, we do not obey the state just because the state says so. We obey the state out of reverence and fear of the Lord. And that is the particular testimony that we want to communicate as the people of God. But of course, having said this, it is also clear from history. It is clear from experience. It is clear from the Word of God itself and and especially that this obedience and submission to the state is not always possible. In an ideal world, there would never be an occasion where we would have to seriously contemplate the possibility of deliberately resisting the authorities, of deliberately disobeying the authorities. But we don't live in an ideal world. We live in a post-fall world. And in this post-fall world, there is much sin, there is much evil, and that sin and evil is at every level of society, including that of government. And so there are times where Christians cannot submit and indeed have an obligation to resist. There are times that make it very clear that this command that Peter gives here is not a command that is absolute. 
times where we must say to the emperor, or to the governors, or to laws, or to magistrates, or to lesser magistrates, we must say to them, no. We must say to them, we will not obey in this matter. We will obey in all other matters. No, we will not obey in this one. That is the particular matter that I want to consider with you this morning. When and how can Christians resist the state? Now, I want to look this morning at this particular question in three parts. So the first thing I want to do is consider how the text from 1 Peter itself strongly implies that submission to the state, this command that he gives here, is not an absolute command. And then second, given that it's not absolute, we'll consider some of the circumstances in which resistance is either necessary or permissible. And then lastly, we will consider how resistance, if it is needed, is to be carried out. So, first of all, I want to begin by looking at this text again and noting several aspects within it which indicate that the submission that Peter here calls for is not an absolute kind of submission. In other words, he is not saying that in every single circumstance and in every single command or law that the emperor or that governors issue, even if those laws are obviously evil, you must submit. That's what I mean by absolute here. There are indeed times, especially again when the the emperor is calling for evil to be committed, whereas Christians we must say no. And Peter recognizes that. Peter, nor the rest of Scripture for that matter, ever views the state as an absolute authority. One of the things that indicates this limitation to the state's authority in this particular text is what Peter calls it. So notice with me again in verse 13. He calls the state, he calls the, the emperor, the, the governors here, he calls them human institutions. More literally, human creations. This is not to say that Peter views government solely as a man-made institution. The Bible very clearly teaches that government has its origin in God. And even the Apostle Paul describes governing authorities as servants of God, raised up by God. So so he's not saying here that humans invented government. He's referring to government in its various forms. Creation in that sense. It's, It's various organizations. Right? We have all kinds of different governmental organizations. We have democracies and republics and monarchies and communist regimes. There's, there's, a, there's a wide variety that have existed over many years. God is the one who originates government. 
and as a secondary cause, organizes government in a multiplicity of ways. Some of which are good and wise, and the structure itself reflects something of the goodness of God, and some of which are not. Some of which the, the governmental organizations that men have created are themselves wicked. The important point to see is that by referring to the emperor, especially, but by Peter including the emperor here as a human creation, Peter is by definition undermining any notion that Caesar was or could be God. And as such, that he had any kind of absolute authority. This designation, in other words, is a check on the power of the state and a reminder that the only absolute authority is God Himself. Indeed, if Caesar had heard Peter say that he is nothing more than a human creation, Caesar would have been quite upset by hearing that. So, so the very designation here of governing authorities is, is one of the, the ways in which Peter is indicating there's a check, on the, there, there's a limit on the, the power of the state. Additionally, Peter says that we are to be subject for the Lord's sake. And then in verse 16, he says that we are slaves to God. It is, it is the Lord, most of all, who is our Master. And the obedience that we render to earthly powers is an obedience that is given only as long as the Master Proves. If our subjection brings us into conflict with the will of the Master, if the, if the human creation in the form of the state is calling for us to sin against God, then for the Lord's sake we must refuse. Our Master is supreme over the Emperor. Third, the nature and the proper role of the state, as described here in the text and elsewhere, places a further check on its authority over us. So in verse 14, Peter describes the proper role of ruling authorities as those who punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. And similarly, if you look at Romans 13, verses 3 and 4, Paul describes rulers there as those who are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And he adds, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Now, both Peter and Paul, from their own experience, well understood that rulers could be a terror 
to good conduct. They were arrested on multiple, multiple occasions unjustly. They faced the terror of the sword of the state when they were doing good. So, so they are fully aware that the state can act in ways that are completely wicked and corrupt. They are not speaking here of how government operates all the time. In both passages, what they are describing is a government that exercises its authority properly. A government that is rightfully using the sword to punish those who are doing evil and to praise those who do good. And, and of course, we, we may not be familiar of the, the praising aspect uh, today, but, but in the ancient world, and, and especially in the, in the Roman system, if you were a, a well-known uh, citizen who did good for your community, the, the government itself would you know, erect a statute or, or you know, engrave your name in certain sites. You know, there, there were ways that they were praising prominent citizens who were known for doing, doing good. Peter and, and Paul are describing government here when it is properly functioning. If it ceases to do that, however, it ceases to exercise its legitimate authority as what Paul describes the servants of God. In other words, the servants of God don't punish those who do good. And so when government begins to do that very thing, it is leaving its proper role and proper authority aside. And so the nature and purpose of the state as designed by God is also a check on its proper authority. But then lastly, I want you to observe that in verse 17, Peter commands believers to fear God and then honor the emperor. The state is to be respected. It is to be held up in high regard as a necessary institution for the flourishing of society. But the state is not to be feared. The state does not receive the fear that God receives. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. There is only one who is to be feared. And that is God. And the fear of God is a higher charge than the charge to be subject to rulers. It is the fear of God that properly defines the nature and the extent of that very subjection. It is a command to fear God that subsumes all other commands under itself. And so when Peter is commanding us to fear God, that is a command that unlike the others is an absolute command. It defines everything else. There are no 
exceptions. There are no qualifications to it. Loyalty, submission, and obedience to God is supreme over everything. Which again also tells us that subjection to the state has certain limitations. And resistance to it is at times permissible, at other times even necessary. Which leads us to the next matter that I want us to consider together. Which is, what are the circumstances when it is necessary or permissible to resist the commands of the state? What are some of the circumstances where it is either necessary or permissible to resist the commands of the state? Now, speaking broadly here, there are at least three circumstances where resistance is either necessary or it can be uh, permissible. The first is that whenever the state is calling for a clear violation of the commands of God, it is not merely permissible that Christians resist those laws. It is necessary. We are obligated to do that very thing. It is necessary in that if state is obeyed in these particular circumstances, we are committing sin against God. Which of course is a, a much greater violation. Now, we, uh, we find several examples of this very kind of resistance throughout Scripture. In Acts chapter 5, for example, this very same Peter, along with some of the other apostles, were arrested because they were preaching the gospel in the temple. They were performing miracles in the temple in clear violation of the ruling council and the senate of the Jews. The Jews had already arrested them. They had already told them You are not allowed to preach and teach and to perform these miracles in the temple. Now, the apostles could have chosen to go and preach elsewhere. They they could have decided, all right, we're, we're going to listen to that command and we're going to go out to the wilderness or we're going to go to some other city. We're going to go to some other location and we'll preach there. They could have said, so as not to upset the authorities, we will go away and preach elsewhere. And if they had done that very thing, at least for a time, the Jewish council would not have arrested them. For a time. And then, as the gospel continued to spread, they would face the very same things again. This is not what they did. They chose, in this occasion, to disobey the law. It was their charge to preach the gospel of Christ, beginning in Jerusalem, and then to Judea, and then Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Charge that continues even for the church today. To 
do and to fulfill. And in obedience to that command, they preached the Gospel in the central place of worship for the Jews in Jerusalem. They preached the Gospel right in the middle of the temple. And they were arrested for it. The, 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 the ruling authorities came down on them. And when they were brought before the council, they were strictly charged again to no longer preach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and the apostles responded in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. God's authority is a greater authority than that of these wicked rulers. The state, in this case, the Jewish council and senate, uses its authority to prohibit obedience to God. And rather than submitting to its delegated authority, Peter and the apostles appeal to a higher authority, to continue doing what they've been doing. They appeal to the authority of God Himself in order to justify their disobedience to the rulers in Jerusalem. There are times when the state may attempt to take upon itself an authority that God has never given it. An authority wielded over the church, wielded over the people of God, and there are times when it attempts to use that authority to require the church to disobey God's commands. And in such circumstances, the church must resist. It's, it's not just permissible. It's not an option. We must, in obedience to God, not sin by obeying the state. Now second, when the state is committing moral acts of evil, it must be resisted. When the state is committing moral acts of evil, it must be resisted. It's necessary to resist it. Now there's, a, there's overlap here with the first but here I'm not so much thinking about our various religious obligations and our call to missions and evangelism and, and worship and the spreading of the gospel. I'm, I'm speaking here more so as it relates to ethical matters. And the state is doing what is clearly wicked when it is abusing its God-given power of the sword and committing evil, it must be resisted. We find one of many examples of this, of course, in the book of Esther, from the passage that we read uh, earlier in chapter 4. Of course, as we saw in that book, the Persian king raises up this man named Haman to be the, the highest official in his empire. And Haman on one occasion, or actually on several occasions, wants all the people to bow down to him and in essence treat him as a god. And Mordecai, the Jew, refuses to do that. And when 
Haman sees that Mordecai is not giving him not just the, the honor of a ruler, but the worship of a god. Haman becomes furious. And he hatches a plot to wipe out all of the Jews throughout the Persian Empire. This was, of course, an obvious act of evil. Having an intention, having a law, having the power of the sword that is directed at wiping out an entire people who are innocent, who have done no wrong at all. It is obvious evil. And so in response, Mordecai convinces the queen, Esther, that this time secretly a Jew, he convinces her to go to the king and to plead with him on behalf of her people. The problem, however, was that there was also another law that stood in her way. Not just anyone, including the queen herself, could enter into the king's presence without being summoned. And if you did that, if you act so boldly as to do that, the law was that you could be put to death. It warranted the death penalty. And so Esther has to break the law to do what is right. She has to act against the state in breaking its laws to appeal to the state in the person of the king about the state's own wicked plans to wipe out a whole people. A plan that was hatched by Haman and approved by the king. And if she had not done this, if she had just remained neutral, and if she had concluded, you know, we just live in a world, and there's lots of evil out there, and governments are going to do things that are, that are bad, and the state's going to act evil, and who am I to, to do anything against it? If she had thought that way, or concluded that she should not act in any capacity, that she should not use her position and and, and her, her influence as queen, she herself would have been culpable for the destruction of the Jews. And so there are times when the state is acting wickedly and it must be opposed. And the church especially is to be the moral conscience that calls it to repentance that exposes its works of darkness by the light of the gospel and calls it to righteousness and to submit itself to God. Our own nation's sanctioning of the slaughter of innocence through abortion is probably one of the most obvious examples of this it's perversion of marriage and sexuality that is enshrined into our laws is another. These are laws that are on the books that the state is saying are moral goods. These are 
These are for the good of society. These laws that we have put in place that are slaughtering countless millions and that are perverting God's created order, the state is saying, this is good. And so the church must, for the sake of the Lord, and for the sake of the state, and for the sake of love of our own neighbors and their own well-being and future generations, this church must look at things like this, obvious acts of evil that are in the law, and it must oppose them. It must speak against them. It must use every lawful means it can to oppose it. That should be the conscience that the state needs. Now, third, there are circumstances when the state may be compelling violation of conscience. And in these circumstances, it is permissible to resist. Not necessarily necessary, but permissible. And so here, I'm speaking about a, a person's conscience. I'm assuming that not everyone's conscience is going to be bound by the same things. A clear example of what I'm referring to is what we find in Romans 14, where Paul is speaking there to the matter of some in the church of, of Jewish background who didn't feel right about eating meat, particularly certain kinds of meat. And then you had others in Gentile background who had no problem with eating any kind of meat. The Jewish Christians foods as unclean because they had lived with those dietary laws for virtually their whole lives. And then, of course, you had the, the Gentile Christians who had not lived under the Mosaic law who were just thankful and still celebrating that they could enjoy bacon. You had this uh, difference in experience and in cultural background between the Jewish and the Gentile Christian. And Paul makes it very clear in Romans 14 that no foods are unclean. He does make a point to say that the Gentiles are right. Theologically, they have it correct. However, he is through the chapter, in essence, commanding both of them and saying to them, don't make this an issue. Don't make this an issue that you are dividing over and that you are bitterly judging and, and looking down upon one another over. One of the reasons he gives, he says, because the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but it's a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He ends that chapter by saying, especially to the Christians whose consciences were still uneasy with eating meat. He says in chapter 14, verse 23, I want you to listen to this carefully. 
says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So if you are a Jewish Christian whose conscience is still uneasy about eating foods that you have for a long time considered unclean, and you go ahead and eat them, you're committing sin. Because you are not acting in faith. That very same action that is sin for you may not be sin for another because their conscience is free from that particular matter. The point is that there may be issues which Christians disagree over and which even Christians and non-Christians disagree over that aren't necessarily matters of sin. And yet, just because something is not a matter of sin, if your conscience is bound by it, and you do it anyways because of some kind of pressure that has been placed upon you, or some kind of unfounded shame that has been placed upon you, you are committing sin by violating your conscience and not acting So if the state then comes swooping in and hypothetically issues a decree that says that all our citizens must now eat meat, or all of our citizens must by decree become vegetarians, it is forcing people to sin against their conscience. And in those cases it is permissible that it be resisted out of a duty to God above all. Right? And this is, this is the kind of circumstance where you may have Christians who are acting in such a way as to resist certain laws that have been put in place that other Christians are thinking, I, I don't get what the big deal is. Because their conscience is not particularly affected by There's a third category that are more so matters of conscience that we need to be aware of. Now there's much more that we could add to this and and unpack, but of course for the need to consider this third and final matter, which is that given the fact that there are circumstances in which the state can be resisted, in what ways can it be resisted? Well, first of all, I think it's worth saying at the outset that by resistance, I am not speaking about violence. Violence throughout history has certainly been used. You can think of the Crusades. You could think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer with Nazi Germany. You could think of some of the things that happened during the American Revolution, that all of those various examples are rabbit holes that And I want to make clear here is that by resistance, I am not equating that with any kind of violence. We're not talking about violent rebellion here. 
What I'm talking about here are three clear and indeed biblical and historical ways that Christians have resisted and refused to submit to the state. And the first, the first may sound a little surprising. The first is fleeing. Resistance by fleeing. By leaving your homeland, by leaving your city, by leaving where you've grown up, or by hiding. We put that in the same category as fleeing, by going underground. Now, this form of resistance is a necessity when the state gets real aggressive and real violent towards Christians. And in places where persecution is regular and deadly, fleeing is an acceptable form of resistance. Resistance, of course, in the sense of not complying with whatever the dictates of the state are. This is one of the responses, in fact, that we see happening in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 8, for example, after Stephen had been murdered for preaching the gospel, we are told about a devastating persecution that broke out against the church led by Paul himself before he became a Christian. And we're told in verse 1 of that chapter that the whole church was scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. They fled in response to the persecution. And we know that this wasn't an act of cowardice on the scattering church's part because just a few verses later, we're told that those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. And Philip himself even later joined them in preaching in Samaria. And so when they flee, they're not silencing or censoring themselves. They're simply escaping from the persecution and they're carrying on the work of preaching the Gospel elsewhere. In the very next chapter, chapter 9, after Paul becomes a Christian, preaching the Gospel in the synagogues, the Jews of Damascus plotted to kill him and he escaped from their plots in the middle of the night and he left the city. And he ends up going to Jerusalem. And so fleeing may be a viable option to resist the state when things are real bad. When the state is coming down hard on Christians. And again, of course, by fleeing, mean only that you leave one location and go to another. I would include in this hiding and going underground. So if you're a Christian living in a Muslim-dominated country like Pakistan or a failed Muslim state like Somalia, or you're a Christian living under the communist regime in China, it's probably not going to be a good idea for you to come up with a church building project and then to plaster a digital sign outside that says, 
come on in at 1045 in the morning to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus. If you're not arrested immediately, you'll probably be killed. Christians who live under a government that is violently opposed to them by necessity have to be more secretive in their gospel living. In fact, if you've ever seen the fish symbol before, anybody ever seen the fish symbol that Christians wear? It's printed on a t-shirt and we put them on bumper stickers now. That's how things have become. This is the this symbol is called the Itsus. And this was used actually by the early church in the first, second, and third centuries when, when the church lived in the Roman Empire and under severe persecution. This symbol represented, it was a mark that would indicate where the church was meeting. They, they were in hiding. And so you might find the, the symbol of the fish engraved on a door somewhere or engraved on a tree, or engraved on a tomb somewhere. And, and, and that, that symbol would communicate when the church is going to gather, where is it going to be? Now, now in order for you to understand the, the meaning of that symbol, you have to be initiated. You, you have to have a, a Christian who trusts you and who has slowly but surely shared the Gospel with you and have recognized that you're not going to betray the church. Now, when you see that symbol, you know where to go to meet the church. The early Christians would have to do that. They, they, they had to be very secretive because the persecution was, was so bad. And so sometimes, resistance to the state involves fleeing and, and hiding. A second way the state may be resisted is very simply science. A passive refusal to obey. And so the state makes a law or it issues a decree and, and the Christian simply does not obey it. One could think here of the book of Daniel, chapter 3, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were commanded to worship the idols of Babylon. And they just refused. They didn't comply with the order. One could think of the passage that we read earlier from the book of Acts. Peter and the apostles refusing to submit themselves to the, the Jewish law not to preach the gospel in the temple. They just went about doing what they had been doing. They did not comply with the law. There was an early Christian martyr named Polycarp who similarly was arrested and eventually killed for refusing to offer sacrifices to Caesar. I think we could think of our brothers and sisters in Canada, some of whom have been imprisoned for continuing to gather to worship despite the government's COVID orders that have lasted well over a year. This is non-compliance. And throughout the history of the church, this has been one of the means that the church has used to resist the state when it exercises its authority in dominions that do not belong to it. Lastly, there's a more aggressive means of resistance, which we might summarize as protest. 
want you to hear me clear as I say this. I am not talking about marching in the streets kind of protesting. That is, of course, one way to protest. It is one way people do protest. But it's not the only way. And it's not the meaning of the term in the broadest sense. By protesting here, I mean that we are using every legal means at our disposal to oppose unrighteous actions of the state. And so that may involve using the courts. That may involve using the power of the vote. That may involve, as the First Amendment says, petitioning the government for a redress of grievances. That may involve lawfully assembling at a state capitol and preaching repentance and singing hymns, as many Christians have done. It can involve all of these things, or it can involve none of these things. There could be other lawful means of resisting that I'm not even speaking of here. The point is that one form of resistance, or this one form of resistance, involves using the laws the rights that the laws grant you for the sake of righteousness in the Gospel. This is something in fact we find the Apostle Paul doing in Acts chapter 23-26. through 26. You read the whole story there of him being arrested again in Jerusalem and eventually being sent to Rome. After being unjustly arrested, after being almost flogged unjustly and falsely accused of defiling the temple of the Jews and of stirring up revolts, Paul, while he was still in prison, exercised his legal right as a Roman citizen to have his case heard by Caesar. He appealed his case to Caesar, and he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to use that legal right. But he chose to appeal to Caesar, and this was not only so that he would have protection from the Jews who were plotting to kill him, but this was also to provide him with an opportunity to bear witness of the gospel to Caesar, just as he had borne witness to the rest of the governing authorities that were there. And so in response to this request that Paul makes, Festus the governor, who who currently had him under arrest, said in Acts chapter 25, verse 12, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now, not just anyone could do that. Peter could not do that. John could not do that. They were not citizens of Rome. They did not have that legal right to appeal to Caesar. The point, we as Christians should not be afraid of appealing to our rights as citizens of whatever particular nation we are in, or appealing to the laws of the land in order to advance both the gospel and righteous laws. It is not a refusal to submit to authority when the human institutions that exist grant us the ability to legally oppose what we believe to be an injustice. 
We might say it's exercising our rights as a Roman citizen. I'll, I'll close with this. The kinds of resistance that can and should be exercised are usually going to be context specific. And what I mean is that a nation that does not recognize for its citizens is not going to be a place where we should expect Christians and churches to be filing legal complaints. We shouldn't expect, in many places, much protesting going on. Because that could easily and quickly get you killed. Unnecessarily. Again, if you try to appeal to the laws of the state in China to grant you freedom to assemble for worship, you're probably not going to get very far with it. You may just disappear. And while we can certainly recognize that persecution and even death may be the lot of the Christian, we never go looking for it. And we don't act like fools and just go run into it. A nation like our own, however, that has enshrined and recognized inalienable rights for its citizens is going to afford Christians with way more opportunities to resist lawfully and righteously. We are able to do that respectfully and we are able at the same time to do that in submission to rulers. What we have here, particularly in this nation, liberties that we have is a good thing. It is unique in the world. And it is something that is to be esteemed much more than a state which does not recognize things like religious liberty. This is something to, to cherish and hold on to. And so for the sake of preserving those good freedoms and for the sake of our neighbors, and the generations that will come after us, whatever means that are at our disposal to preserve those good laws and to oppose evil ones can and should be used. We ought not to confuse our situation with many of those that we read in the Bible or from church history where Christians basically had no legal rights at all, and where resistance by way of protest was simply unavailable to them. Our context is very different. And we ought not to be embarrassed by it, because the liberties that we enjoy are fruits of what many, many Christians over the centuries have labored for and argued for and reasoned for and in many occasions tragically shed their blood for. We ought to be a people whose first instinct is always to submit to governing authorities. But when those authorities act against the Word of God, we must do what Peter says in Acts must obey God rather than men and do so through whatever means are at our disposal to honor the emperor 
and to fear God. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it is a a great task that you have given to us. You have called us to be a, a holy people, a holy priesthood, a chosen race. You have called called us to live in obedience in your commands in the midst of a fallen world, and you've called us to be strangers and exiles in it. And as strangers and exiles, we are to be a people, as Jeremiah said long ago, who seek the welfare of the city of the Lord. So, Father, I pray that you would grant to us wisdom. That if there be occasions in which there are conflicts between the governing authorities and between obedience to you, Though it may be intimidating, we would choose obedience to you and take whatever repercussions may come our way for the sake of the Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name.